0: So way back when the Israelites were still in the wilderness, wilderness like way back with Moses, hundreds of years before they ever thought of having a king, Moses warned them that to have a king was a dangerous thing. Um, and, he, and he told them, he said, if you get into this land and you insist on having a king, like all the other nations around you have one, there are some basic safeguards that need to be set up. First of all, the king needs to be someone the Lord chooses, the Lord, not the people, not an inherited title, not the most popular guy, nor the most handsome, as we've seen. And the Israelites have had a little trouble sticking to even just this very basic thing. We've seen several coups already where the Lord's anointed king is challenged by a usurper. Secondly, the king must be an Israelite, not a foreigner. So far, so good on that one. Third, he must not obtain too many horses for himself. (laughs) That's a weird command, especially since horses really weren't in use back during Moses' time. It's um, one of those anachronisms. But what's meant here, Moses explains why the king can't get too many horses the king's not supposed to make people return to Egypt to get horses for him. Moses says, the Lord has told you not to go back that way again. And and that's really the important point. Egypt is such a huge temptation for the Israelites. They're like an abused person, they gravitate towards their abuser, and they have trouble trusting their rescuer's goodness and good motives. They feel more secure with what's familiar when they can worship idols, they can see and can control. So Egypt is a really big temptation and Egypt sells horses. So therefore the king must not send people back that way again to buy horses. Fourth, the king must not hoard wealth. We get that. The king is already powerful and this is a call to humility. In fact, all four of these commands so far have to do with belonging to the Lord, recognizing the Lord is God over the king, recognizing the Lord is the provider of all good things and supplier of all needs, and humbling yourself before God, even if you are the anointed king. So ostentatious display of wealth and hoarding of wealth is not humbling yourself before God and before the people. But you say, if a king humbles himself before the people, he's showing weakness. He is opening himself up to attack. Well, that's true. But it's only a problem if the king depends on his own charisma, his own strength, and a show of wealth to intimidate people and retain his power. And that's not the Lord's way. The Lord's king will be a humble man, dependent on the Lord for provision And protection, a man who holds his kingship in open hands before the Lord. I don't know if the world has seen very many kings like this. Do we even do this in our own so-called kingdoms, our workplaces, our churches, our families, our communities? What kind of leader are we? There's a lot here for us to learn. Fifth, the king must not take for himself many wives. Polygamy, as you know, was a cultural fact back then. There was no question but that men would have many wives. This cultural understanding of marriage was built into the law of Moses. Women were used back then. They were used to produce warriors, used to ensure the survival of the nation in the face of attack from all sides. Women were a commodity. Wives and concubines were a status symbol. And as such, The collection and hoarding of women would be as bad as the collection and hoarding of wealth. Actually, it's even worse, as we shall see shortly. And lastly, the king is to write for himself a copy of the Mosaic Law. He's to sit down and put pen to paper copying it over. Deuteronomy 17, 17 through 20 says he's to carry it around with him and he's to read it all the days of his life so that he learns to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of the law and all God's decrees and not to consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, nor to turn from the law to the right or to the left. So let's see how Solomon scores against this criteria. He was definitely chosen by the Lord. Check. And he's an Israelite. Check. So how does he do on horses from Egypt? Well, 1 Kings 10.26 says Solomon accumulates 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. Solomon's horses, it says, are imported from Egypt as well as other surrounding kingdoms. Each chariot cost 600 shekels of silver, which would end up being about $6,000. And each horse costs 150 shekels of silver or about $1,500. So all told, we're looking at like $26 million worth of horses and chariots, many of which he sent people back to Egypt to get for him in direct defiance of God's command. He is valuing the strength of Egypt over the strength of the Lord, and therefore he is putting his people in spiritual danger. This to me sounds like an epic fail. As far as hoarding wealth, this is a trickier one, isn't it? Because the Lord had promised to bless Solomon with wealth such as the world had never seen. So we can't look from the outside at all the gold in his palace and the gold in the temple and really judge this, can we? But we can look at the witness of his people. Was Solomon humble? Second Chronicles 8 tells of Solomon's vast building campaigns, specifically mentioning the need to build chariot cities and places for all his horses. Hmm. He forces all the foreigners living in Israel into slavery as his workforce. The Israelites themselves are not enslaved, but they are definitely subject to harsh labor, as we find out later in 2 Chronicles 10. So the labor for his campaigns is coming at a very high cost. What about the materials? If the Lord has given Solomon peace on all sides, think about it. There's no plunder from war. And the money for his grand building campaigns has to come from somewhere, doesn't it? Some may be coming from tributes from the surrounding kingdoms he's conquered or has made allies, but the bulk of the funding is coming from the pockets of the people, the farmers and the poor. So the labor and the cost of materials for a huge, grandiose building campaign is causing his people to be severely burdened. I I have to call this a fail. So let's talk about wives. Kings are not to take too many wives. Now Moses didn't say how many was too many, but the idea is that wives should not be commodities collected as a sign of wealth and power. So how does Solomon do on this? Well, 1 Kings 11 tells us that aside from his Egyptian wife, Solomon loves many foreign women, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Now, this is a problem no matter how many or how few he has, right? The Lord has consistently told the Israelites not to marry women from among the idol worshipers, because the women will want to continue to worship their idols. They will train their children to worship idols rather than the Lord. And the men will also fall into thinking of the idols as gods, and they will pray to their wives' idols rather than to the Lord their God. On top of marrying idol-worshiping wives, Solomon ends up having 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a thousand wives and concubines. That seems to be too many wives, no matter whose yardstick you're using. So I'm calling that another fail. At least he loves his wives. He wants them to be happy. But as he grows old, his wives do turn his heart towards the idols. He begins to worship the goddess Ashtoreth and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, the one who demands child sacrifice. He builds an altar for Kamash, the god of the Moabites, who's just like Molech. And Solomon begins to offer sacrifices to these idol gods. This is a failure of the single most important thing on this checklist. Solomon the wise is an utter failure in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord says to Solomon, since this is your attitude, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your men. For the sake of your father, David, I will not do this during your lifetime. But I will instead tear the kingdom from the hand of your son. Even still, I will not tear up the whole kingdom from him, but will let him keep one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. As the Lord begins to withdraw his hedge of protection from around Solomon, adversaries arise in the nations that had previously been subdued. Right now, it's just bands of hostile rebels, but the seeds are planted for future conflict. Most notably, a hotbed of resistance is established in Damascus, the seat of the Aramean nation. Trouble begins building north of Israel. One of Solomon's officials is a man named Jeroboam. He's from the half-tribe of Ephraim. He's a young man, an up-and-coming star in Solomon's court. Solomon recognizes his gifting and potential and puts him in charge of the labor force of the tribe of Joseph, which, as you know, is made up of the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's twin sons. One day, Jeroboam is going about his business when a prophet from Shiloh meets him alone in a field. The prophet's name is Ahijah. Ahijah is wearing a brand new cloak, but he takes his new cloak off and tears it into 12 pieces And says to Jeroboam, this is what the Lord says. He's going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hands and give you 10 tribes. But Solomon will keep one tribe for the sake of David and the sake of Jerusalem. David will always have a lamp before the Lord in Jerusalem. So I'm just going to pause here and say, he said 10 tribes for Jeroboam, one tribe for Jerusalem. The say um, the, Solomon will keep that's only 11 tribes. That's because we're talking about land here, and the 12th tribe of Levi doesn't count when you're talking about land. So he's split, he's splitting it between 10 in, in the north and one in the south. Ahijah continues God is tearing the kingdom away because Solomon worships Astereth, Molech, and Kamash and has not walked in the ways of the Lord nor kept his statutes. This will not happen in Solomon's lifetime, but will happen after his son comes to the throne. As for you, Jeroboam, you will be king over Israel. If you do whatever the Lord commands you and walk in his ways and do whatever is right by his eyes, he will be with you. The Lord says, I will build you into a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David. As for the part of the kingdom left to David, they will be humbled because of this, but they will not be humbled forever. Wow, that's a pretty big prophecy. And you can tell it's from the Lord, partly because the Lord is urging Jeroboam to draw near and remain faithful to him, but also because of the Lord's characteristic mercy. Even though Solomon has sinned terribly and the people will end up suffering because of it, the Lord will not let them suffer forever. So at this point, the Lord has told Solomon, um, he'll tear all the tribes but one away. And now Ahijah the prophet has identified Jeroboam as the man the Lord will make king in his place. Somehow Solomon hears of the incident with Ahijah and immediately sends assassins to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam flees to Egypt and, and stays in the court of Shishak, the pharaoh. Shishak is the first pharaoh mentioned by name in the Bible. It's another one of several references, both in the Bible and in other historical records, that help us date when all this is happening. In Egyptian records, he's called Sheshonk the first of the 22nd dynasty. Remember Shishak. He'll come into, into play again in a bit. Solomon himself is such a complex character. One of the most beautiful books in the Bible is Solomon's Song of Songs. We don't honestly know if Solomon himself wrote it. Ancient writers often wrote books and claimed they were some famous figure writing it. But it is from Solomon's general time period, and he certainly could have written it. It is classic erotic love poetry and follows a pattern of this genre that we see in many other examples, especially those of Egypt. So when you read or interpret this book, be aware it may be nothing more than what you read literally. It's a very sexy, intimate, beautiful saga of love. As you read, if you think, uh, wait, is that a double entendre? The answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> When the beloved says, let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits, she's not talking about apples and oranges. Also, as you know by now, Egyptian royalty often married sisters and half sisters, and that continued even in Israel until the Mosaic Law. And even after that, it was common for Israelites to marry nieces and other women in their extended family. So don't be thrown off when the lover calls his beloved his sister. That term of endearment does not imply incest in the way we understand it in our own culture. The Song of Solomon is such a powerful book. I stumbled across it when I was in high school. We definitely did not read it in the ultra-conservative church of my childhood. It was from this book that I learned the names of parts of a woman's anatomy and became aware of sexual love. And although I think it's a travesty that sex education is repressed among Christians and that I didn't have any sex education, there was a beauty and a tenderness about learning about sex this way. It's not a theological book at all. It just isn't. It's not deep. It's erotic love poetry from an ancient Near Eastern culture. God isn't even mentioned by name at all. How in the world it ever made it into the Bible? I have no idea. But the book is pervaded with a sense of wonder and love and joy. It's a beautiful expression of all that is good about sex and intimacy and love. It is, I believe, a reflection of the Trinity. I believe we're given sex and intimacy in marriage so we can comprehend the depth and preciousness and vulnerability of God's love for us and the intimacy of the dance between God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and us. That's why I would never force any human being into celibacy. You would be denying them one of the most powerful communicators of God's love that exists in this world. Celibacy can only be a calling. Any suffering or wounded soul, anyone who feels rejected and unloved, can go to this book for comfort. Jews have long understood this as a love song of God to his beloved people, Israel. Christians understand it similarly in their own context. And I encourage you, when you need to be reminded of how much God loves and cherishes you, to read this short book, substituting your own self and your own name as the beloved and welcoming God as your lover. God truly is our lover. This book helps you sit in this deep reality. We've now come to Solomon's old age. He's seen and done everything there is to see and do in the world. He's had riches and power and honor from people and from God. He's an expert in flora and fauna. He's wise in the ways of men. He's had it all and he's thrown it away. He has not followed his own advice in his thousands of Proverbs. If you want to read Solomon's own reflections on his life, read the book of Ecclesiastes in your Bible. It's another book we're not going to read together. I'm going to tell you about it here, but it will be one to read on your own now that you understand its context. Ecclesiastes is only 12 chapters long. And there's a single word that is woven as a refrain throughout the entire book, and that word is hevel. It is sometimes translated as meaningless or vanity, but neither of these English words quite capture the connotations of emptiness, ruin, and mourning. It's a sad, sad word. I prefer the word empty. So if your Bible Um, says meaningless or vanity and it seems strange to you, try substituting the word empty and see if the book begins to make a little more sense. Let's hear from Solomon in his own words from Ecclesiastes.
1: Empty, empty. Everything is utterly empty. Man comes and goes, and his life makes no difference at all. The sun rises and sets no matter what he does. The earth goes on. He will not be remembered. None of his contributions will end up amounting to anything. I was king over Israel. I devoted myself to study. I explored everything under heaven. I've observed all the things done under the sun, and nothing lasts. It is all empty of meaning. Trying to change what is twisted is like chasing the wind. And I thought wisdom was the answer. but I was wrong. Even wisdom did not insulate me from sorrow. Even knowledge could not protect me from grief. So I threw myself into pleasure. Surely that would have meaning, but it was also empty. I tried alcohol, I tried doing whatever folly took my fancy. I tried throwing myself into grand building projects that would last long after I'm gone. I built gardens and parks. I gathered slaves and herds and flocks. I amassed riches beyond measure. My harem would delight the heart of any man. My singers would gladden any heart. I denied myself nothing. The world was in my grasp and I took it. In the end, it did not fill my emptiness. I mean, I can see that wisdom is better than folly and light is better than darkness. I'm not a fool. But the same fate overtakes both the wise man and the fool. So why does it matter which one I am? Even being wise makes no difference in the end. So I hated life. I hated all that I had gathered because I knew in the end it did not really belong to me. I will die. All I can have is whatever satisfaction I get out of eating and drinking and doing my work well. And whether I am wise or gifted, It's in the hands of God anyway. God is the one who decides, not me. So all my striving is in vain. There's a time for every purpose. Everything has a season, a time to be born, and a time to die. God sets eternity in our hearts. God makes everything. Each one of us, each part of creation, beautiful, but only in its due season and we have no control over any of it, our striving is nothing. We are meant only to live in the now. We are meant to enjoy the moment, our mundane daily lives. This is God's gift to us. All else belongs to God. Only what God does will endure. We can add nothing to it. We can do nothing to take away from it. And here's something else I noticed, that where there should be justice was wickedness instead. I thought God would bring the wicked to account and would reward the righteous. I thought God sent hardship so we could see that we are no more than animals and that we will ultimately die. We don't even know if our spirits rise up after death. We might just be like the animals and not rise, or perhaps even they rise up. We don't know. We don't know. We are totally dependent on God. We can only resolve to enjoy our lot in life. But that doesn't seem fair either. I look around and see so many who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them, no power to overcome those who oppress them. They'd be better off dead or even better yet if they'd never been born at all. I also see that the only reason people work is because they are envious of their neighbor. People work themselves to the bone for what? To be better than their neighbor. That's folly. Two are better than one. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. So keep your mouth shut when you go to the house of the Lord. God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, stand in awe of God. We all go to the same place in the end. Those who God blesses with long life and riches and many children end up in the same place as those who died stillborn and never had a chance to live at all. All our efforts are worth nothing. It all goes into our mouth and we are never really satisfied anyway. The day of death is better than the day of birth for death is our destiny. Wisdom is but a shelter, just like money is a shelter that provides some protection during life. We might as well face each moment as it comes and be happy when good things happen and sad when bad things happen. Because good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. God has made one as well as the other. God made us upright, righteous, but we have gone searching for evil. So I've concluded, I've concluded that both good men and evil men are in God's hands. We both share the same destiny. So we must enjoy life while we have it. For after we die, we know nothing anymore. And eventually even our memory will fade. Do life to the full. Love your wife, eat your food and be glad for all these things are fleeting. They exist only in the now. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. No man knows when his hour will come. Be generous, for you never know when disaster will overcome you, and you yourself will need help. You cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. So just keep doing your work and sowing your seed. Enjoy the good times and in the days of darkness, remember that everything is just a breath, empty, uncontrollable like the wind. So live in the now. Live in the now. Banish anxiety from your heart. Cast off the troubles of your body. In the end, our bodies will return to the ground from whence they came and our spirit will return to God who gave it. Everything else is empty and meaningless and we are vain to think we can control or change it. The conclusion of the matter is this, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is what we are called to do. For God will bring every hidden thing to light, whether it is good or evil.
0: Wow. That's worth some time meditating on. Many thanks to my friend Robert Cottrell for recording the words of Solomon for us. It helps to understand that Solomon wrote these words after making every mistake in the book. After having reached the pinnacle of life, of power and of blessing, and then throwing it all away to worship idols. And so we come to the end of Solomon's life. He reigned over Israel for 40 years. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in Jerusalem, the city of David. And so here we have three books authored in part or in whole, we think, by King Solomon, and they are all over the map. Proverbs is just that, a book of wise advice in a pithy format. The main character is Wisdom, a female figure who was created as as the foundations of the earth were set. She's portrayed as dancing in delight as God created our world. The second book is the Song of Songs, also known as the Song of Solomon. It's classic Near Eastern erotic love poetry, and it is explicit and it is steamy. What else would you expect from a man with a thousand wives and concubines? It's absolutely stuffed with life and love and hope and dreams. And the third book is written at the end of his life and is named Ecclesiastes, which is a Greek translation of the original Hebrew word, kohelet, which means preacher, preacher it's Solomon's memoir, a reflection on his life. The repeated refrain in this book is emptiness. Solomon thought he was special. He figured out he was no better than anyone else. He realized God could have made anyone king over Israel, and God could have made him a slave. How could the same man write such different books as the Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes? Is life really as hopeless as Ecclesiastes makes it sound? Are our dreams doomed to be dashed? How do we reconcile this with the hope that pervades the good news of Jesus? We'll talk about this in our breakout groups. I've given you the introduction, so skip straight to the questions. So I hope that was interesting. Um, I, I tried to pick out uh, things that Solomon said that I also heard Jesus say, but in a in a different way. Um, I I um, I also I it made me think of a, a, a something my grandfather used to say. He used to say, "Don't ever ask a farmer who's failed how to farm." <laughs> <laughs> And and that's, you know, kind of what we're talking about here with Solomon. Uh, I think if you didn't understand the context of the book of Ecclesiastes, you might read it, pluck it out of the middle of the Bible, out completely out of context and try to build theology out of it, you know, and it is the writing, the memoir of a man who failed. And so way he's going at it there's something inherently wrong with it um it's the words he says all the right words he does get to the right place in the end that it's all about God and not about him and that he you know there wasn't anything special about him that God picked him to make into a grand and glorious king that 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 all of that was worth nothing without God that part's right but somehow Solomon just got it all messed up and I thought that Jesus redeemed it. You know, Jesus kind of gave it to us the same words, but in a, in a, in a healthier way, in a life-giving way, rather than a, de- a, a meaningless, everything's meaningless kind of way. So um, the first question compared Solomon saying, what we do and who we are is in the end meaningless. We will all die and are eventually forgotten. And Jesus, on the other hand, said, I cannot do anything by myself. I can only do what I see the father doing. The father loves me and shows me what he's doing, and he will show you even more. So what's the difference between these two?
2: One of the things that jumped out to me was um, where are the two, are they focused? Solomon's focused on himself, and Jesus is focused on God.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, for Solomon, it's a moment of self pity, where for Jesus, it's a moment of of sort of affirmation.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Mm-hmm. Right.
4: So, so it's actions based on yourself, your self interest, or back, or on God's interest. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, let's do the next one. Solomon said, God can make princes slaves and can make slaves princes. We have no control over what God makes us. Jesus said, a rich man decided to build a bigger barn to store all his riches. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get all your stuff? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for themselves that is not rich towards God. What's the difference?
3: I personally found that there wasn't much difference between the two um, because both of them were saying you're going to lose everything when you die because you just can't take it with you. Um, I think that when in the Jesus side is to do whatever you can do for other people. Don't worry about doing for yourself, do for other people. So I kind of figure the riches that he's talking about that we can leave behind is the memory we give others as to how we helped or how we took care of them or, um, built them up or whatever. Um, where Solomon is like, you don't have any control over anything. So just don't do nothing.
4: (laughs) But let, let me just say, uh, Whatever God makes you, it's important what you make of it.
0: Oh, I like that. Yeah. All right.
4: And so because ultimately that is what is count, that's what counts.
0: It really does. And that's, I think, especially poignant uh, right now as we're coming through COVID and the pandemic and everything, where people are have lost their jobs and people's unemployment payments are being taken away from them. And, you know, they they go from being rich to like having nothing. Um, it, it's so important that your self-worth not be... Embedded in your status, your riches, and your quote success. Mm -hmm. You know, and that I think is what Jesus is trying to get across here. All right, let's do the third one. Solomon says, So we might as well live in the now and enjoy the good things in life and know that the bad things will also come in due season. And Jesus said, Don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink or what you will wear. If God takes care of the grass, won't he take even greater care of you? Do not worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough troubles of its own. What's the difference?
4: Reliance on God. And mm-hmm. here and now.
0: They both seem to be saying to live in the now, right? Mm-hmm.
5: Yes, but I think Jesus is saying, you need to just trust in God and not worry. That's going to take away from what you have now. That's mm-hmm. going to give you stress. That's going to impinge on your relationship with God and with yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. How, do, how do their um, I- ideas of the now differ? What does Solomon think of as the now and what? how does that compare with what jesus thinks of as now living in the now that...
4: yeah so solomon of course comes from the angle of infinite riches and resources and it just all became nothing his 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 joy he never got any it seems he never got in the end uh any any more joy from it
5: Mm -hmm. You know, I shared with the group, um, I have a crafting shopping obsession where I acquire a lot of crafting things and we had home repairs and it took four storage units to put all my stuff in. And then when my house was empty of all that, I felt so much lighter. I felt more, even though I don't have my stuff available to me, in some ways I feel more creative because I don't have as many choices. I don't have as much to select from. And so when my things come back, I'm going to be doing purging mm-hmm. to get myself where I don't feel controlled by the things around me. And we were also talking, I think Rhonda mentioned about, um, Doing missionary work and seeing people with far less and much gratitude.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it to me it it seems like when Solomon is saying just you know live in the now and enjoy the good things when they come and know that bad things are going to come, it it comes with a, a a kind of a subliminal message of nothing is is has any inherent value you know Mm -hmm. um and i i find that different than what jesus was saying i think jesus was saying there is no inherent value in worrying about tomorrow because tomorrow doesn't exist right now you know that that the value you're by worrying about tomorrow you're missing the value in today um Mm -hmm. into what you're what you're doing today and it's they're both saying the same message um but one is seems kind of defeatist and the other one is stay in the now so that you can fully generate life in the now so that you can fully participate in the now so that you're fully present um Solomon to a large extent seems to me to be checked out you know
2: yeah it also oh go ahead Renee
3: Okay. It also seemed to me that Solomon is saying, do what makes you happy. And it doesn't matter if it hurts somebody else.
0: Mm.
3: In a lot of ways. It's like the 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 me generation was, you know, the the no matter what happens, make yourself happy.
0: Yeah, it's that it's exactly that kind of a, a vibe, right?
2: Yeah. What do you yeah. have? And the, another, uh, you know, a a thing that popped out at me is that again, you know, Solomon is is has this sense that um, life has no value, things have no value, he has no value. You know, why did we even? Why were we even born? Maybe we would have been better off not even being born. Mm-hmm. Where Jesus is saying what has value in God's eyes is you. Yes. Not the accomplishments, not the acquisitions, not the power. It's you.
0: Yes. Yes. All right. Let's do the next one. Solomon says, and you know, I'm paraphrasing Solomon here, but I'm paraphrasing very closely to what he said. I'm just not using the old Bible language. He says, bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people and God doesn't seem to intervene. And that surprised him. Jesus said, you'll be sorry, you self-righteous religious leaders, when you're thrown out of the kingdom of God. You'll be appalled at the people who come take your place at the feast in the kingdom. In fact, those who were last will be first and those who were first will be last. What's the difference?
4: Yeah, so your your stance in this life uh, doesn't at all have necessarily have a bearing on eternity. of a lot of good and bad in this world happens because of, of free will. And, and human, you know, human interaction, and we're all flawed. And, you know, uh generally uh i say you know satan is the prince of this world um and so um you know god may intervene selectively but in general you you know uh, we live in a uh we, we live in a fallen world and you know that that can turn things upside down but it won't be that way in in the kingdom
0: what else did y'all think about that one
2: well you know i think i think i probably tend to um identify more with solomon's perspective on this one (laughs) because (laughs) you know there there are people that you see who are really you know bad people and seem to be thriving and and you know my reaction is where's the justice here yeah exactly what solomon said yeah um but i think the the what, where Jesus kind of turns that on its head is that we're looking for justice in the here and now. Mm-hmm. We're looking for we want to be there when this person gets toppled. There are people I would love to see in prison, um, or at least bankrupted. And and um, and to me that would be justice. Um, but what Jesus is saying is that God's justice has a broader view, and God's view of justice is different from ours.
5: Yes. And it's and one of the things I get from that is even though we uh, see the appearance of a certain behavior or whatnot, sometimes there may be more under the surface with these people that we don't know about, that it's maybe all they can handle, you know, mm-hmm.
0: that's true. That's true. And I do think that that, um, that it helps uh the perspective, as Marlene was saying. It helps I think Solomon was very firmly rooted in the perspective of um he judged people, you know, as being good or bad people, and then looked to see. What happened to them and and what happened to them was not their just just reward, right? You know he was very much of a cause and effect kind of guy um and and we are naturally I mean it's natural for us, and certainly he was living in a culture that thought that in a culture that said, you know, if you do bad, the gods are going to get mad at you, and bad things will happen. you do good, you're a righteous person, the gods will be pleased with you, and good things will happen and he's saying. <laughs> it's not working. <laughs> it's not doing it like that. You know, um and and Jesus I I think Solomon then just threw up his hands, right? But 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 I think Jesus then comes back and see exactly what Marlene was saying, which was yes, but God is going to set things right. God will set things right. And and we need to just trust that. We need to trust that in our own lives when we know That bad things are happening to us that we don't deserve. And we need to also remember that when good things happen to us that we don't deserve. Right? So the last one is, um, here's Solomon. It's all about God. Keep his commands. You're fooling yourself if you think you have any power at all. You cannot hide from God. He sees what you do in secret. He knows who you are. And Jesus said, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. In fact, you'll do even greater things than these, because I will do whatever you ask of me. What's the difference between these two?
4: Power is from God. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think also Solomon Solomon is speaking more like a victim, where Jesus is speaking like an empowerer. Yeah, yeah, that makes. Well, sense.
4: Solomon. He had everything. He he no doubt saw himself as a, a very bad victim at the end. Not like he wasn't given a warning up front that he seemed to have forgotten. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. Am I right or wrong? I mean,
0: he had it all. He's he's very defeatist, definitely, right? Um, And he comes to the conclusion. I think the difference here is that Solomon comes to the conclusion that we have no power. And Jesus is saying, uh, no, you do have power. You have unimaginable power because God gives you his power. You, that, that power, the power of God flows through you.
4: You're not powerless. Yeah. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, Gail, but you know, at the beginning of this, God told Solomon if he if he did some of the things he did, then that, you know, he would, you know, he had a choice. You do this, you're gonna be good. You're gonna you're gonna be real good. If you do this other thing, I will do, you know, I'll you're going to end up bad i'll take things away from you
2: yeah
0: but yeah it's it go ahead
4: Molly.
2: Uh, go ahead Gail. no you i was gonna say it seems like like um what happened and what jesus is addressing and what you were saying gail about the power flowing through us is that solomon somewhere along the way unplugged yes from from god's power and thought that all this was happening, all these good things were happening to him because of who he was and not because God was flowing through him. And Jesus is saying, stay plugged into the source and you will experience this power.
0: Yeah. And and notice that, that Jesus never said, plug into this source and then the bad things will stop happening to you. Right. Right. God's perspective, and I'm I'm glad you brought this up, Ross, because God's perspective has never been um, individual when it comes to the kings. Right? Those kings are there as a service to the people. Period. The end. One hundred percent. And God reacted to them based on whether they they you know led the people away from God or not. That, that the whole point of the king was to to focus the people on God to show them how to draw near to God uh, and 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 God reacted accordingly so a lot of this you know God smiting people stuff you know um, in the Hebrew Bible is not directed at individuals it's directed at kings who are misleading whole nations you know um and 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 i i don't think we should get that confused with how jesus deals with us individually Um, so it's
4: Uh, and unfortunately also uh the, the kings and we we get our motives mixed up between us and god and the punishments The resulting punishments uh whether it be as as a result of what we did and it wasn't god punishing us it was us realizing the result of what we did versus god actually punishing us because we turned turned away because we did not we did not realize that the motive for our action was selfish rather than god-based
0: Yeah. And and I think it's, it's, it's helpful to realize, you know, I've tried to emphasize it as we've gone through that, that God's natural default is protecting us, you know? Um, And that, and that when these Kings began to uh, move the nation away from God, God withdrew his protection from those Kings and bad things started to happen. Um, And and, uh, I just, You have to step back and think about when you read these stories, think about who is God dealing with here? What is that person's position of influence? What is the expectation of them, you know, and and how are they affecting the world around them? How are they affecting God's people? And that perspective, Jesus showed us very clearly in the in the New Testament uh, the threat in the New Testament was the religious leaders who were re- leading people away from God rather than leading them t- towards God. So um, it, it's really important um, when you're reading these the stories of scripture, that you uh, remember the context. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get a really skewed view of who God is. Um, um, any other comments? Well, that was the that was the last question. Anything else come out of your discussions? This, well, oh, go ahead, sorry. go ahead, Julie.
6: This, this is this didn't come out of our discussions. This is just something that's realized to me right now. I I do a lot with a twelve step program. I'm a, I go to Narnon meetings quite frequently, and um, the things that Solomon are saying are the things that we are asked to accept. We ha- accept that we are powerless. We accept we have no control over the situation. Um, we accept that uh, the only way that we're going to survive in this situation is to rely on God. So you've got one side where this is what Solomon says. And then you've got the other part of the program that talks about of um, uh, Uh, turning everything over to a higher power live in the now don't worry about the future Um, and and i just i i never really kind of thought about how like maybe the old testament had anything to do with with or 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 the 12-step program how so much of it has got necessarily to do just with jesus but the whole package deal So it's it's just an observation I made.
0: I think that's brilliant, Julie. Yeah, absolutely.
4: I always thought the uh, billionaires should do a case study in Solomon.
5: (laughs) 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 Julia, you had a comment, I thought. Well, I have a question, and it's really basic, and I feel silly asking it, but I probably should look it up, but I figure since you're here, I'll ask. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. What's the diff? Why not make the concubines wives?
0: Well, the wives were were mainly political alliances, um, political marriages made to um, ensure peace with all these different city-state kings all around him and all those kingdoms. Um, concubines didn't come with that um, extra political clout.
5: Oh, just the goat herder's daughter. You got it. Got it.
0: Okay. <laughs> Anything else?
4: I I have uh, kind of pointed people. I don't know if you've seen it, Gail. Uh, the Solomon, like the Solomon movie on like Amazon Prime, which I've watched. I kind of liked. Uh, you know, I can't say it's 100% historically accurate, but I thought it was pretty good. Has anybody else seen that?
0: I haven't. Wow. It's worth. I love watching the old movies. You know, until their theology just gets so whacked that I can't speak. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, th- I think it is. In essence, I think it captured what what we were talking about.
0: Cool. We'll have to check it out. That sounds good. Well, we're done with Solomon. He's rested with his fathers, and we're going to move forward. Uh, what's coming next is cataclysmic in this nation of Israel. So I will see you next week, and you all have a great week.
5: Bye. 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 Bye.